Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast In Good Company. I'm Nikola Tangen, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. In this podcast, I talk to the leaders of some of the largest companies we are invested in so that you can learn what we own and meet these impressive leaders. Today, I'm speaking to the legendary Stephen Schwartzman, the founder and CEO of Blackstone, the world's largest alternative asset manager. Blackstone has grown into a massive financial company. We own over half a percent of Blackstone, translating into 5 billion kroner or 500 million US dollars. Stephen Schwartzman is one of the most successful and influential people in global finance. You for sure don't want to miss this one. It's a big honor to be here with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. Oh, you have wrote, you have um, written this book, which I have in front of me, and it's called um, What It Takes. So my first question is basically going to be, uh, what does it take? Well, it, t- it takes, depending upon what you're thinking of achieving, it takes enormous focus. Yeah. Uh, it takes um, emotional stability, because you always have a lot of setbacks. Uh, it takes something that is a pretty unique plan if you really want to have large success. It takes uh, a big vision. Uh, I've always found that um, uh, just doing what other people do uh, and trying harder uh, is not nearly as good as doing something different than what everybody's doing. When you, um, when you left Lehman Brothers in 85 to start Blackstone, what was your vision and your dream? Well, um, the, the dream uh, emotionally uh, was to feel the same way about what you were doing uh, when I was uh, at Lehman, and that was to create an environment with enormous flow so you could be continually learning uh, and meeting new people uh, because I really liked that feeling. Um, uh, what we tried to do uh, was create a, a new type of financial institution uh, it, hard to believe, uh, but in 1985, there weren't what are now called M&A boutiques. M&A is mergers and acquisitions. It, right. I didn't even think about that. I just thought that since at that point I was running the, the largest um, a, a merger and acquisition uh, department by volume, um, uh, that we could just do more of that and the same people we were servicing would do business with us. So that was the, the flywheel, the first business we were thinking about. But we came up with a strategic plan where we wanted to go into the what's now called the private equity business because I was advising the people who were in that. It was a very small industry. There were probably eight to 10 firms and they were all, the people running them were all basically around my age, uh, except one. Uh, and so I knew them very well uh, uh, and a lot socially as, uh, in addition. So that w- was viewed as a great potential business. And the third thing we wanted to do uh, was to go into new businesses in finance. Uh, typically when they were cyclically depressed, um, so, so we knew a turn was coming um, uh, and um, uh, to be successful because my partner and I didn't have the knowledge in every business, 
we wanted to hire somebody who was a 10 on a scale of 10, uh, who, who had great domain knowledge to build that business. Uh, and the third part of that uh, strategy is we always wanted to keep control of that business so we always could have ethical uh, behavior. Uh, and that was our three-part strategy. Uh, and uh, as odd as it sounds, uh, we're still executing uh, that you. strategy. You for sure are. Now, you say that you can learn to be a manager and you can even learn to be a leader, but you can't learn to be an entrepreneur. What does that mean? That means you can train and be trained to do a lot of jobs pretty well, uh, uh, including learning how to be a manager. It's a, it's a particular skill to do that, as you know from being one. Uh, but being an entrepreneur, which is a whole mix of things, uh, it's, it involves visualization, uh, creation of new things, um, uh, being alone, uh, which most managers don't like, uh, because when you start something, you're, it's really just you or you and your partner, uh, and then you have to go out and recreate everything. It's a super heavy lift. Uh, and so, so people who like to do things like that, where there's a real prospect of failure, um, uh, have a different uh, makeup. Uh, and it, it requires 24-7 uh, energy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, entrepreneurs look like they're taking risks, but entrepreneurs don't think they are, or else they wouldn't be doing it. Uh, and, and so risk is in the eye of the beholder in a way. Uh, and, and so those people tend to be different. What's the main difficulty that people underestimate when they set up something? Uh, they, they misestimate the pain and suffering hmm. uh, of being alone, being rejected, um, uh, finding out that some of the assumptions that you made uh, to go forward m might be wrong. Hmm. So you have, to, you have to like pain a no, bit. I, th that's why many people are not entrepreneurs twice. Yeah. Uh, that, that if you get through that period, then um, uh, you, and you make a successful outcome of it, you know, the idea of just going completely on your own uh, mm. again uh, isn't so appealing. Has your investment philosophy changed since you started the firm? Yeah, uh, it, it has. Uh, you so know, what, are you, what kind of things are you looking for now that you didn't necessarily look for 35 years ago? Well, when we started... Uh, I had never made an investment. So only back in the mid-1980s could you go out and raise, raise a huge pool of capital with two people who have never made an investment. We raised um, a, a total uh, of $950 million back then, $1 million, which... It was enormous at the time, right? It was enormous, yeah. uh, absolutely enormous. Uh, Still quite a lot of money. Yeah, well... Uh, not compared to where we are now, but I, I still think it's, it's it was it was um, quite large. Mm -hmm. uh, so so when I started, uh, we hadn't made an investment, so we we ended up making in our third investment a mistake, uh, mm -hmm. which was made by me. That was a steel company. Yes, that was a steel distribution company, yeah. and I sat at my desk. It was like make pretending you were a grown up. And I sat at my desk and I called them both in and I listened to them 
you know, sort of simulating King Solomon. Uh, and I, I picked the person who uh, had brought the transaction uh, and we went forward with it. And the other person at the time said, I don't think uh, that uh, this investment will pay its principal and interest within three months. Uh, well, I, I think I think it was wrong. It was six months. Uh, and it was a disaster. And mm. we put more money into it. We almost lost that. Uh, I, I sold uh, that business uh, to a, a French uh, steel company. Uh, and we still lost the equity. We got the second amount of money we paid back. Ba uh, back and we protected all the banks mm. who were in the deal. And it was a searing experience for me. Uh, you know, when you, in, and, in, in your book, you have 25 rules, and one of them is don't lose money. Right. Well, which I, sounds a bit like I mean, it's kind of it sounds a bit, uh, if you excuse me, a bit a bit of a lame advice because it's kind of so obvious. So. No, actually, not so. Uh, I realized, uh, having worked so hard to raise the money, that that I, I made one limited partner in particular furious. Uh, and he had a right to be because we had lost his money on that. Uh, and it made a huge psychological impression uh, on me. Mm. And, you know, I almost started crying when I was talking to this person who was then screaming at me. And in my family, neither of my parents ever raised their voice. So I, I heard raised voices in sports, yeah. but not in an intimate setting. And I almost started crying when this guy was yelling at me. And I remember walking out and saying, I'm never going to have this happen to me again in my life. What has that done to you then? Has it meant that you have become too risk averse at times? Uh, no, not really. Uh, it's it's risk averse all the time. It never changes. Uh, <laughs> and And by that, I mean, every time we look at investment, our point of view is, is there any realistic alternative Mm -hmm. uh, that could happen to us with this once we make this investment where we will lose money. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, we don't go forward. So it doesn't make you uh, risk averse. It just makes you risk sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you look at then switching to the kind of happier side of things and uh, to the making money uh, side, when, yes. you, when you look at your best deals, have they got something in common? Yes. What is that? they're the easiest ones to say yes to. What, what does that mean? That means in every organization that commits capital, you always end up with a thick memo, uh, goes to an investment committee, it gets debated. Uh, and the most successful deals require the least debate, have the least controversy. Uh, they just seem completely logical uh, at the time you do them. And that's usually how they work out. The more meetings you have to have on something, um, I've found that the outcomes can be good, but they're seldom great. Uh, and, and some of those investments sometimes become ultimately uninteresting. So that's one thing I've learned. The second thing is to have a really great investment, you have to be uh, in a really good neighborhood. You have to be working in an area 
uh, where, where good things happen, where there's growth, or if it's a cyclical, where it's a really a violent kind of upside uh, that, that you're going to be experiencing. Yeah, very interesting. If we were um, to move, um, move tack a bit here, so we are in a, what should we say, uh, interesting times for sure, right? Um, for sure. <laughs> Now you have been through, I think, uh, seven recessions. Where are we now? What what is the world looking like? Well, we're we're going through a period, uh, really, that was created by the pandemic, uh, which affected the entire uh, world, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the industrialized countries, uh, U.S., Europe, uh, and Asia, uh, and as they say from studying the pandemic in 1919, uh, pandemics affect almost everything. Uh, and, and usually it takes five years uh, to figure it out. Uh, so, so we're in the third end of the third year now. And, and as a result of the pandemic, people were locked down uh, all over the world and uh, they didn't go to offices. And you know, at least in the West, about 90% still had their jobs. Uh, and they ended up saving an enormous amount of money because they weren't spending it on clothes. They weren't going to restaurants, the movies. They weren't going on vacations. They basically were living at home. Mm. Uh, and those savings uh, are now being deployed. Uh, and so there was an explosion of uh, purchases and, and desires for experiences, which, which has not stopped. Mm. Um, now, there's also massive government stimulus, different in different countries, uh, but, but it all put a lot of money in savers' hands. Uh, and the mismatch uh, of the production uh, of goods uh, that happened because different countries came out of the pandemic at different times, even within a country, different parts of it, our country, for example, in the States, some states were well finished with uh, COVID and other ones weren't, that, that there weren't enough goods for all the people to buy. And that mismatch created very high levels of inflation regardless of what government had what policies. Mm. Inflation was everywhere. So now we have the central banks raising interest rates and they're raising them very quickly. And usually when central banks do things like that in order to try and kill inflation, uh, if they raise rates very high, very fast, that dislocates markets. Uh, and what we're seeing now is that dislocation really playing out uh, in financial institutions. Uh, but we're having all kinds of um, uh, issues uh, with uh, financial institutions uh, mm. in, in the United States, just started, um, you know, sort of last weekend, uh, and uh, we had uh, two large uh, uh, bankruptcies, uh, mostly caused uh, by banks buying over the last two years uh, very l low interest loans, which is prevalent in Europe, uh, mm. of course, and as the Federal Reserve Central Bank. And the ECB is going to do some version of this, I think. Um, uh, starts in increasing interest rates. Those old bonds that the banks own aren't worth as much mm -hmm. as when they bought them. And the higher the central bank raises it, 
the bigger those discounts are. Uh, and, and those discounts uh, can be viewed as losses, and those losses decreases the capital in the banks, which makes depositors, when it's pointed out to them, nervous. Yeah. Uh, and if they take their money out and those bonds have to be sold uh, to pay them off because you can't sell loans very easily in a bank, uh, that, that then creates you know, losses of capital and losses potentially of confidence, mm. which is what happened in our government, uh, uh, responded to that by, by uh, guaranteeing the deposits of those two banks. On the other hand, uh, uh, people who deposit money in other banks are then worried, will they get that protection if something goes wrong? The answer is no one knows. Uh, mm. And so that creates more uncertainty. Uh, in, in Europe, um, the increases of the ECB uh, are also starting to affect uh, bank valuations mm. uh, with those stocks going down. So what may happen as a result of this uh, is that there may be more regulation on banks. Certainly there will be in the United States. And uncertainty on depositors uh, as to where to leave their money and to the extent that money goes either just to a few big banks or you know, it goes into the capital markets, there may be less uh, firepower for the banking system to, to fuel uh, uh, the, the economy. Do you think there's a lot more turmoil to come? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, th there'll be a period of adjustment um, uh, after you have the second and third biggest uh, 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 bankruptcies uh, in the financial system, uh, the United States, uh, and 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 so that period of adjustment could result in a variety of different scenarios. I think most people think uh, that that for medium size and smaller banks, uh, th there'll be um, more pressure on those institutions. There's been a bias for 50 years to create larger and larger banks. Europe has always had large banks. Mm. In the United States, uh, when, when I started, there were something like 15,000 banks. It was a huge number of banks. Of course, there'll be less. But, but I think that, that the, the, the new form of re-regulation uh, for the mid-sized banks will, will create pressure on economic growth, mm. uh, which will slow uh, the, the economy. Are we going into a recession? If that scenario happens, th then, you know, it, it, it seems um, more likely uh, mm. that, that you would have a, a recession in that scenario. Have we seen the peak of interest rates? Um, what a great question. Uh, have we seen the peak? Well, we've seen the peak this week. Yeah. Uh, you know, because investors have gotten so scared that they've they've changed uh, their expectations uh, for what's going to happen dramatically, uh, uh, and uh, they're projecting a, a much more uh, uh, profound slowdown than they were thinking before, uh, and I, I think the central banks are committed to getting inflation down to quite low levels. Uh, and we say in the United States, 2%. Mm. 
That could be 2.8%. No one knows. Uh, but but I, I think that the central banks won't give up uh, on their quest no. to do that. But what will happen over a you know, relatively short period of time is that there'll be some uncertainty as to how high they need to go again. And, and so they'll monitor the economy for the next two or three months uh, and, and get that sense. Uh, and, and if inflation isn't really starting to respond, then they'll continue on their journey higher. Mm. Uh, so we should expect a breather now and then going higher. I, I think uh, there are different ways of defining a breather. Uh, could be either a pause or continuation to increase. But, mm. you know, at the 25 basis point level, that's a quarter of a percent uh, in, in the United States. Um, uh, and there'll just be more caution mm. by the central banks. So where would you put your money now? I always put my money in Blackstone products. Why am I not surprised? That, that, that's but, tu- that's but do turned, you think? <laughs> that's turned out to be a good outcome. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it for sure has uh, made you an incredibly uh, uh, well-off person. But do you, think, do you think there will be a place to make money over the next, let's say, three years? Uh, absolutely. Uh, because what will happen if the financial, um, you know, sort of... Um, dislocations that are happening now forces the economy down, uh, you know, as you say, I've been through this seven times, uh, that uh, there will be a lot of forced sellers of assets and you'll have lower asset prices uh, and people under, you know, real pressure. uh, And the way our business is constructed at Blackstone, we raise money ahead of time. uh, and, and then uh, only deploy it, un- unlike managing stocks. Uh, we, we don't deploy the money until we happen to have I- interesting things to do. And what happens uh, is, is uh, that there become a huge number of very interesting things to do within that three-year window. Uh, and um, th- that's when you do your best deployments. Uh, you, you don't make the most amount of money when you're buying your tops of markets. No. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you usually can tell when you're at a top uh, because your friends who aren't very smart are making a lot of money. And yeah. the reason they are is there's too much credit around. Mm-hmm. So now credit is going to contract. And when that happens, um, th- there are a lot of uh, businesses that suffer. Uh, and people who become overextended. Uh, and th- that is like the moment for us. My approach has always been, our approach is, you wait until you know you think you're at the bottom. You don't have to invest it all at, at the bottom. It's just fine if the world starts getting better. Yeah, uh, why is that? So you talk about that you want a 10% bounce from the yeah. bottom before you get engaged. Why, why is that? Well, because what happens is people always think that you're buying at the right time. And so if it's, if it's a, a bunch cheaper than it used to be, and you buy something, it can go down further, and then it could stay that way for a few years. Mm. There, there's one example I use. Uh, you could have bought an office building in 1982 uh, after uh, oil collapsed in that first time. Uh, and in 1992, it still would have been the same price. Yeah. You wouldn't have made any money. Uh, 
if you bought it in 1992 when it all started going up, um, you would have done really well. So, so calling bottoms is, is something that you'd think would be logical, uh, but it ends up not being completely wise. Uh, moving on to leadership, what's the best leadership advice you have ever received? Well, leaders listen. Uh, and asking people their views is a very important thing. Uh, and I, I've found as, as a leader, um, not being the first person to speak is really important. Uh, I think in a leadership position, every word you use gets amplified by the listener. So you have to be exceptionally careful about what words you choose and the emphasis you put on words. You talk about hiring in the tens. Now, what is a, what is a 10 compared to a nine or eight? Well, a 10, you know, uh, can do almost anything. If they were a basketball player, they'd be like Michael Jordan, um, you know, or Steph Curry, or uh, if they were a football player, they'd be like Tom Brady, who's the greatest of all time as a quarterback. How do you find them? How do you identify them? Well, um, th they sometimes seek you out. Sometimes they're extremely well known. Uh, and uh, you, you know one when you see it, uh, when you're tell talking me how, to tell somebody. Me how, do you, how do you know it? Oh, it's just pretty easy. You meet someone and you start talking about um, something in their sphere of influence and, you know, they just light up uh, and they're perceptive and they explain what's going to happen and why it's going to happen and, you know, what they've done in the past with these types of things. And conversations with people like this uh, professionally uh, can be pretty unstructured mm -hmm. uh, and they see the whole field uh, of play. They have a sense where the world's going. They can explain what they do. Uh, so so and, now we are in a job interview and you know, here is my CV. Yes. And uh, how are you going to find out whether I'm a 10? Well, it depends. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I never know uh, when I interview somebody what I'm going to talk about. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll read their CV before I go into the room. Uh, usually at the bottom of a CV, they always have something odd like, you know, uh, climbs uh, the Himalayas uh, jumping on one leg. Uh, you know, they, <laughs> they, they write something where they really want you to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and so depending upon my mood, uh, you know, I'll go right for that and say, well, what, what makes you go up mountains on just one foot? Uh, is it too easy on two feet? And, and so you've now, you know, created a bond with that person mm. because they wanted you uh, to ask about that. So they obviously have an answer. Now, one of the things we are concerned about as a fund is CEO pay. And um, I'm actually not going to talk about your pay because uh, that's mainly from your ownership in, in Blackstone. But do you think uh, there is such a thing as too high CEO pay? Well, it's an interesting concept because I don't think that much about pay. Why not? Here, every, everybody 
uh, tends to invest in uh, the in investments that are made. Uh, and th that's how really big money is made. So it's completely aligned mm. uh, with um, our, our investors. Uh, and, you know, sort of our, our people get well paid because people who do our kind of work historically have gotten well paid. So there's a certain competitive nature. If you decide to take a different point of view, you can't hire people. I think that uh, as long as our investors are doing great uh, and you know, investors in our stock are doing great and our, our people are doing well, that's fine. But when you look at elsewhere in the US, are there times when you think, gee, that was over the top? Yeah, I think the answer for that is sure. Uh, you know, there are certain times people have been paid money. I sort of look at it, I scratch my head <laughs> and I go, what, what, what is that about? Yeah. Where, where's the value being added? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't mind large uh, um, compensation packages for people who are truly gifted and are creating something uh, unique. Um, you know, if you were um, sort of Bill Gates starting Microsoft, my goodness, it changed the world. Now, one of the things which is uh, happening in the world now, of course, is um, the relationship between China and the US. Now, you've been interested in China for a long time. What kickstarted your interest in China? What was interesting, um, I, I took my children uh, to China in 1990. And, and, and just for your listeners, uh, to show you how much the world has changed, uh, we were one of only very few people in an automobile in Beijing and in Shanghai. Everyone else was on bicycles. Mm. It was extraordinary. Bicycles everywhere, cars nowhere. Uh, I think in 1990, China's uh, gross national product per capita per person was probably around $200. Now the average is somewhere around $13,000. So it was the most rapid growth of any large country uh, in history. So it's an interesting place. Uh, I hadn't been back since 1990 uh, and um, uh, we were going public in 2007, uh, and I got a phone call uh, from from uh, somebody I, I didn't know well, uh, who I'd hired uh, after three interviews to be our partner in China. And, and two months after he joined us, he called and said that he'd, uh, he was on the board of uh, uh, their largest bank, and after the board meeting, uh, two people, the chairman of the board said there was somebody wanted to see him, and it was two uh, individuals. Um, and you know, he called me after that meeting, and he said they wanted to invest <clears throat> three billion dollars in the Blackstone IPO. Mm -hmm. I said, well, are they must be very rich? He said, no, they're not rich. I said, well, where do they work? And he said, um, they don't have jobs now. 
I said, so two unemployed, not rich people are going to give us $3 billion. I said, is there a reason you're making this phone call to me? Because uh, I was watching television. It was nighttime and I was reading, you know, some of my office work at the same time. Uh, and, and the phone r rang. It's when we actually had phones that rang as opposed okay. to carrying them around. Uh, and um, he, said, he said, yes, you should take them seriously. I, I said, why? I, I said, what did these guys do before? He said, well, one was the, uh, the deputy uh, finance minister of China, uh, and the other one was the deputy head of the central bank of China. I said, well, why were they fired? He said, they weren't fired. They were just removed from what they're doing to do something else. I said, well, why aren't they doing it? He said, well, they haven't been reassigned yet, but um, uh, there, there's a rumor that China's going to start a new sovereign wealth fund and that they are going to be the two top people. Mm. And um, I said, well, why are we taking this seriously? He said, well, you obviously know nothing about China. And two people in these positions would never come to see you unless um, uh, the... Um, uh, that China Inc. wanted them to do it. I said, what's China Inc.? He said, Steve, it's China, the country. Mm. They're speaking for the country. Mm. Now, you've been, you've been incredibly close to the people who really matters there ever since. How do you, uh, how do you read the situation now? Well, the situation now is, is pretty complex. Um, I, I think the pandemic has made life and communication uh, among countries uh, all over the world uh, uh, different. Uh, and, and so the pandemic is, you know, ending in China now. After three years, it ended after two years in the uh, developed world. Uh, I think it's pretty clear the relationships are uh, strained uh, uh, and that needs to be addressed. And how do you assess the relationship between China and the U.S. now? Well, I, I, I just said the relationship is, is uh, really strained. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, that, that type of thing can happen uh, with, mm. with countries. Uh, China and the U.S. are um, together somewhere between 40 and 42 percent uh, of the entire world's economy. Mm. People think of them as just two countries mm. among roughly 200 countries in mm. the world, right? One percent of the countries. But they're like 42 percent of the economy mm. of the world. So these, these are very important issues when, when countries are not, you know, in, in a more seamless kind of relationship and they're having difficulties. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that affects the whole world. We have tens of thousands of young listeners to this podcast. What kind of advice would you give them to the young people today? You should recognize that you're only going to be really good at something um, that you really love. Mm. Uh, when you enter the grown-up world, uh, you know, there are all kinds of different jobs to take. Some are very prestigious, some aren't. Uh, 
uh, you can start with a prestigious job uh, to gain foundational skills, uh, but you have to end up doing something that you love. Mm. Be because if you just sort of like what you do, then it is work. If you do something where you have the aptitude and the care uh, and the excitement of what you're working on, it's not work. It just becomes you. Uh, and that's when you can do some extraordinary things. So it's really about finding a match mm. between something you don't know, which is the outside world, and yourself, which you increasingly learn more about as you get older. Mm. Well, Stephen, it certainly seems like you have found the perfect match between what you love, your passions, and what you are exceptionally good at. Thank you so much for having taken the time. It's been a true pleasure. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have the opportunity. Uh, you know, you have an incredibly challenging, interesting uh, job. And, you know, that, that makes it fun for you. Uh, and, you know, for the rest of us, you know, I feel very fortunate to have stumbled into uh, uh, finance, um, uh, particularly since I don't have good math skills. So, <laughs> so it, it shows you that what makes you successful in something isn't necessarily what people would think. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, knowing how people think is more important in finance and what the, how they'll act or the ability to identify problems and how to solve them is more important than math. Mm. Uh, and everybody thinks finance is math. Mm. Uh, it's, and it's not. I agree. Very good. Thank you. So, Stephen, one thing that not many people know about you is that uh, when you were a student, you had a summer job at a Norwegian tanker. And um, you were sailing to South America, and I think you got into a bit of trouble at a, at a bar in Trinidad and were saved by the Norwegian crew. Well, that, that was true. Uh, <laughs> is I, it perhaps something you don't want to talk about? No, no, no. <laughs> that, that was a fun part of my life. When I was uh, 18, between my uh, uh, freshman and uh, sophomore year, my first and second year in college, uh, I, I wanted to see the world. I wanted yeah. to learn something. And uh, so, so I, I decided an interesting thing to do w would go to, go to sea. So I went to the Caribbean and uh, I went to Trinidad. And, and so we had our one night in Trinidad and I saw a very attractive woman there. So I went over uh, to, to see what my luck would be for that night. And, you know, so some people came over to me very angry at me. And I had no idea why they were angry at me. Uh, and one of them, you know, sort of hit me. And I, I, I'm not used to being hit. And I couldn't understand what was going on. So, um, um, uh, so, so my crew members came to defend me. And it ended up like being in a movie where, where people were <laughs> fighting with each other and taking chairs and hitting them over other people. And I was just standing there going, what in the world is happening here? So retrospectively, I found out that that woman was evidently, you know, was, was supposed to be with a guy from that other crew. Well, how would I know something like that? Uh, and, um, uh, and it ended up as like a, you know, the police ended up coming and breaking the fight up. 
And that was my first day on shore. Uh, but, you know, I learned uh, that um, I like Norwegian cheese. Uh, and I good. think they had uh, Ringnes beer. Is that the, the... That's right. That's right. And I was working in the engine room. And what is so hot there, it's like 110 to 120 degrees. And I would drink this beer and I could watch it coming right out on my skin. Uh, and, and so it, it was a tough, uh, tough first job. Well, Stephen Schwarzman, from the engine room of a Norwegian tanker to the COO founder of uh, Blackstone, what a journey. Well done. It's a, it's a fun journey. Mm-hmm.